The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, John Tyler. He became the first vice POTUS to become POTUS when his boss died after just 31 days in the White House. While the country and the Congress weren't sure if he should even be in power, well, he took the reins and charged ahead at a full gallop. Displaying his own strategic vision and a healthy bit of confidence, he turned a lot of folks off. In fact, he was so headstrong, he was kicked out of his own political party for vetoing one of their own bills. The man known as his accidency, John Tyler, his divisive all-American story is next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brown. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Our 10th POTUS is a somewhat overlooked occupant of the White House. To help us get to know him and what drove his controversial decisions is Dr. Chris Leahy. A native of Baltimore, he earned his Ph.D. from Louisiana State University before landing his current role as a professor of history at Cuca College in New York State. His book that we want to get into is called President Without a Party, The Life of John Tyler, which we will link to on our AmericanPOTUS.com website. Chris, you know your stuff when it comes to 19th century American politics. We appreciate you joining us here on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Chris, we do appreciate it. And I, I must tell you, I really enjoyed your book, and it gave me a much more nuanced view of John Tyler than I ever had before. And I wonder if we could start today with his resume, which is amazing. Can you review for us the offices he held prior to becoming vice president and then president? Uh, James Buchanan was often called the old public functionary because he had held practically every office that one could hold, including diplomatic appointments before he became president. But I would actually argue that John Tyler had a more impressive resume. Uh, He served in every, it was elected to and served in every office possible. Uh, He started out in the Virginia legislature as a 21-year-old. He also served as governor of the state of Virginia. He served in the House of Representatives from Virginia, senator from Virginia. Uh, So he had a a very uh, distinguished and I think uh, the, the type of political career he had really did prepare him for the presidency. In many ways, I think his political career groomed him for the presidency. What made him such a successful politician from a really young age? Well, he wanted it. He, uh, he had a very uh, big desire to be a politician. That was really all he ever wanted to do since he entered college at William & Mary. Uh, really went to college primarily to be a politician, to, to prepare himself for a career in the law that would serve as a springboard to a political career. And he was also on the right side of parties uh, in Virginia in the early 19th century. The old Republicans, they were more states' rights, strict construction, more Jeffersonian in their orientation. Uh, he certainly believed that that was his ideology. He had uh, inherited that ideology from his father, who was a, a prominent judge in Virginia. And as much as he had 
slight differences with people, with power brokers like Thomas Ritchie, who was the editor of the Richmond Enquirer. He may have had some small differences with them, but overall, his ideology and his temperament uh, really put him on the right side of most of the, the political system in Virginia. So he was able to advance uh, both within Virginia and nationally because of that. Now, talk us through his selection as William Henry Harrison's vice presidential running mate. Why did so many people turn down that position and why did Tyler accept it? Well, if we think about the fact that no vice president had ever become president, nobody was really thinking in terms of William Henry Harrison perhaps dying in office. Uh, most vice presidents also did not become presidents in the early 19th century. It was usually the secretary of state that used, was able to use that particular office as a springboard to the presidency. And I think most of the people, most of the men who the Whig Party asked in December of 1839 to be vice president just thought that it was a, a dead end job, that it really had no promise that you know, they had recognized the recent history of someone, say, like John C. Calhoun, who um, had been vice president under two presidents and had not been really close to uh, becoming president of the United States. So I think they, they really thought that it was a dead-end job. Tyler, on the other hand, in effect, announced himself as, prob uh, as the proper candidate for vice president. He went to the nominating convention in Harrisburg himself. He went personally. Uh, he as I put in the book, he, you know, all but stood up and, and demanded that they they look at him as the uh, potential nominee for vice president. So I think he saw the office in a different light. Uh, he had actually had uh, some thoughts uh, of Harrison's age, if, if Harrison was able to get the nomination uh, as president. So I think he certainly was much more forward looking than uh, the men who turned it down. So the other question then is, why would the Whigs turn to him? He wasn't a stalwart Whig. It didn't appear to me. Why would why would he be on their shortlist even? Well, I think that's the more interesting question, actually, and, and really the one that's more historically significant, given how things turned out. Um, I think to some extent, the the Whigs believed that because Tyler was in their party, that despite some of his past proclivities towards states rights and strict construction, that he would. Uh, by virtue of the fact that he was nominated for vice president, really abide by the predominant nationalist ideology of the, the Henry Clay Whigs, of the, of the dominant wing of the Whig Party. I think they believed that, you know, he would feel beholden to them uh, if if he had to, that he would uh, make sure that he trumpeted their their particular ideals and their agenda. But I also think that Nobody really thought or gave serious consideration to the fact that that Harrison was, you know, of an advanced age. The possibility that he might die seemed remote to most of them. And I don't really think they, they gave it much thought. Of course, they, you know, they came to resent that and, and came to regret that. Um, but I think there in Harrisburg, they, they, they just didn't really give it a much, much thought at all. Yeah. Well, of course, they had to give it a lot of thought after 30 days in office, Harrison died. And as you show, the actions that Tyler took in those first days as president set a lot of precedents. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. Uh, well, the, the first president he set was he took the oath of office. Um, I, I point out in the book that, you know, 
practically everybody who, who looks at American history, who knows anything about the presidency, is familiar with that iconic photograph of Lyndon Johnson aboard Air Force One on November 22nd, 1963, right after President Kennedy had been assassinated. And, you know, we see Johnson taking the oath of office and that precedent uh, whereby a president who now comes into office because of the death of the incumbent, uh, that precedent was set by John Tyler. He took the oath of office. Uh, there is some discussion that he believed that the oath of office he took to become vice president back on March 4th, 1841 was sufficient, but he did take the oath of office as president and believed that that solidified his standing as a president. He also really established himself as the president rather than an acting president or uh, something like a regent. Henry Clay once said that he thought John Tyler should have served more of as a regent rather than a president. There were other people in the Whig party like John Quincy Adams who believed that Tyler should only receive the benefit of uh, the title of acting president. But by taking the oath of office and establishing himself as the president, Tyler really set that up for all people who all the men who followed. Yeah. And he quickly had issue with the Whig Party, as you noted, with Henry Clay, especially eventually being banished from the party. So aside from fiscal policies, which we'll talk about in a minute, what explains that deep animosity? Was it primarily ideological? Was it personal or both? Well, I think I think it was both. Um, ideologically, uh, Tyler did not conform to the dominant nationalist view uh, of protective tariffs, a national bank, federal money for internal improvements, which were really the hallmarks of the Whig Party. And really, by the time Tyler became president, Henry Clay had come to personify the Whig agenda, what, what he had called at one point the American system. So there was a definite clash there between the predominant ideology of the Whig Party and the long-standing political beliefs that John Tyler had. So there was an ideological component to this. But as the conflict between Tyler and Clay developed, they um, had a special session of Congress in the summer of 1841 uh, called to deal with the fiscal crisis, the financial crisis that had been brought about uh, beginning in 1837 with the major financial panic. Um, they had been, you know, came together in this special session of Congress. And as that special session of Congress proceeded, the ideological rift between John Tyler and Clay or John Tyler and the predominant wing of the Whig Party became personal. Um, it became ugly. Uh, there was a lot of invective. There were you know, name calling. Um, Henry Clay at one point on the, the floor of the Senate referred to Tyler as his accidency, uh, denigrating how he had come to occupy the office. So, I think the best way to look at it is that this ideological battle that was going on during that special session of Congress quickly morphed into a very highly personal, very emotionally charged conflict between Tyler and the predominant wing of the Whig Party, especially Henry Clay. And, and part of those ideological differences were indeed based on the fiscal policies and the old debate over the Bank of the United States. Can you perhaps summarize for us the history of that debate and how Tyler approached it as president? Sure. Well, Tyler philosophically opposed a national bank. Uh, he never believed it was constitutional, uh, was, you know, again, a, a strict constructionist, more of the, um, the old time Thomas Jefferson belief that 
the bank was unconstitutional, that there was nothing to sanction it literally in the Constitution. Tyler certainly carried that view with him all throughout his political career. Uh, what's interesting is that when Tyler has a clash with Andrew Jackson, when Tyler is a, a senator from Virginia, he actually breaks with the Democratic Party because Andrew Jackson had removed the bank deposits in an effort to kill the bank in, in, in Jackson's second term. So it's ironic that even though Jackson was doing what Tyler may have personally preferred uh, in terms of the bank and trying to get rid of the bank because of its constitutional aspect, he actually opposed Jackson's abuse, as he called it, of authority uh, that he instigated by removing the deposits. But you know, in any event, Tyler was philosophically, ideologically, and to some extent, practically opposed to a national bank. And that turned out to be the signature move of the Whigs during that special session of Congress. The first thing that Henry Clay wanted to do was reestablish what would have been the third bank of the United States. Jackson had killed the second one. So they wanted to reestablish the third bank of the United States because they believed that doing that would allow the country to be put on a, a firmer economic footing that would help lead to recovery away from the panic. So just right from the start, that particular issue really became emotionally charged and really set Tyler on a course, a collision course with the mainstream of the Whig Party. The bank issue is certainly not the only issue that develops during that special session, but it is the catalyst for what came next. Now, turning from the domestic scene to foreign policy, you show in the book that Tyler had a number of foreign policy successes and that he changed the role the traditional role that presidents have played in foreign policy. Can you tell us about some of Tyler's foreign policy accomplishments? He took an active role. He played an active role in foreign policy in the sense that he was involved in some of the minutiae that previous presidents had allowed their secretaries of state and their foreign legations to deal with. Um, I think the best example of this is the Webster-Ashburton Treaty, uh, between the United States and Great Britain, which was worked out and then ratified by the Senate in 1842. Uh, the Webster-Ashburton Treaty, uh, named for Tyler's, at the time, Secretary of State Daniel Webster and Lord Ashburton, who negotiated for the British, among other things, settled a long-standing border controversy. Uh, the United States had claimed territory that actually went up into New Brunswick, into Canada. The British, of course, objected to that. So the Webster-Ashburton Treaty, again, among other things, uh, settled that boundary dispute. But Tyler played a, an active role in this. He was very actively engaged. Um, every night, practically, he would uh, sit down with Webster and they would go over what had happened during the, the day, uh, the previous day for the debates um, between Ashburton and Webster. So he took a more active, had more agency, took a more active approach to foreign policy. And really, in, in my view, uh, rightly deserves a significant portion of the credit for that. He could rightly be proud of that particular treaty. Tyler also was the first U.S. president to really stimulate an opening between the United States and China. He sent one of his political allies, Caleb Cushing, to China uh, to negotiate a treaty and a, a treaty of amity and um, economic considerations with China uh, and was able to successfully do that, recognizing that uh, having a certain Pacific mindedness and looking at the Pacific markets 
would certainly benefit the United States. And I think to some extent, he laid the groundwork for a lot of what would come in the later 19th century. Tyler also uh, instituted what he called or what was called the Tyler Doctrine. This dealt with Hawaii. Uh, The United States essentially uh, applied the Monroe Doctrine to the Pacific uh, by by staking a claim in Hawaii and uh, basically telling European nations who were interested in Hawaii, which was called the Sandwich Islands at the time, to stay out. So he was really um, continuing this this vein of uh, Pacific mindedness and, and looking more towards the future. And I think as successful as he was at doing this, the true success in all this comes later in the 19th century when Hawaii, of course, becomes a significant part of um, first Grover Cleveland and then William McKinley's administration. And then finally, uh, a lot of people don't really uh, look at it in this way, but Texas uh, was a foreign policy consideration, was a foreign policy success as well. Of course, you know, it was a mixed bag. It was a double-edged sword because of the the ramifications for slavery and the sectional crisis. But Texas being a a foreign country, a separate nation at the time Tyler was president until he was able to bring it into the United States, it did become a uh, significant foreign policy matter. Well, of course, the issue of Texas brings up the issue of slavery. So can you tell us what his views were on the institution of slavery? And, and did he support that annexation of Texas just to support slavery? Or was it because of fears of Great Britain? Or what other reasons were there for their annexation? Well, Tyler had a, I would say, complicated view of, of slavery. He was certainly a slaveholder. Um, certainly his political career was at least in part dedicated to protecting the interests of slavery, slaveholders, um, the South, you know, more broadly, Virginia. Uh, So certainly he has that background and that was the frame of reference that he had. Uh, He largely inherited from his father, from Thomas Jefferson, from James Madison, the view that slavery was best viewed as a necessary evil, that it had been fastened onto the United States uh, by Britain, you know, passing the buck here and blaming the British, uh, but that it would best be at some point in the future uh, abolished, although Tyler, like most of his contemporaries, uh, might have viewed slavery in terms of the necessary evil paradigm, but did nothing to actually advance that. However, what makes his view a little bit more complicated is that when it suited him politically, and this I think is especially true with regard to the annexation of Texas, he could skirt the margins of what historians have called the pro-slavery argument, where slavery was seen not necessarily as a a necessary evil, but as a positive good, that there was a, a beneficial aspect of slavery for both the enslaved and for the slaveholder. So he wasn't as doctrinaire uh, a pro-slavery argument guy as someone like John C. Calhoun, but he did dabble in that when it became something that would benefit him politically uh, in terms of, in, in the case that I mentioned with Texas annexation. So he's got a, a complicated view of slavery, uh, but make no mistake about it, he was very much beholden to the institution of slavery and would not have and did not do anything to make sure that it did end. Tyler was thrown out of the Whig Party. He was then spurned by the Democrats. And one thing your book taught me is that when he decided to run for president in 1844, 
He tried to do that as a third political party, to create a third political party. What actions did he take to do that? And what were his true intentions in that ultimately unsuccessful effort in 1844? Well, he did try to create a third party, the Tyler Party. Uh, I guess not a very original name. <laughs> right. um, but he he went about it through the patronage, uh, trying to appoint patronage positions throughout the United States uh, of people who were close to him or who were allied with people close to him, trying to build this party through the patronage, but at the same time also trying to court Democrats who uh, had maybe fallen out of favor with the, the mainstream of the Democratic Party and a group called States Rights Whigs. And it was really... Uh, <laughs> I think it was probably the only way that he could have tried to craft a third party. Ultimately, it proved uh, very unsuccessful. It was really not a way to do it in the sense that it had any long-term chances of success. But he did make a concerted effort through the patronage, trying to woo disaffected members of both of the main political parties, um, and really had the intention uh, of succeeding himself in 1844. There's a, a great part of of the campaign in 1844 where he's talking to uh, Mordecai Noah, who was one of his political allies, at least early on in the process of him trying to succeed himself in 1844. And he at one point said that he wasn't really building a party so that he could advance his own political prospects, but that so that he could uh, make his agenda uh, something that both political parties had to deal with. So in other words, he would say, I don't really want to become president. What I want to do is make sure my signature issue, Texas annexation, becomes a signature issue of the campaign of both parties in 1844. And ultimately, he said he wanted the Democrats to adopt his pro-annexation policy. However, he was being disingenuous. Uh, there's a great letter from Daniel Webster late in the process where Webster tells, and I forget the, the correspondent, um, it may have been Nicholas Biddle, actually. He tells Biddle that he believes, that Tyler actually believes that he can become president, that he is not doing this on a lark. He is not doing this merely to shape the agenda of either party, Democrats or the Whigs, but that he actually believes, he's holding out belief that he can succeed himself in 1844. So there's a bit of a, I don't know if this is too strong of a word, but there's a bit of a delusional aspect to this in a way, um, in the sense that Tyler really does believe in his heart that he can succeed himself. Mm -hmm. Well, he leaves the White House in 1845, stays involved in politics, um, and then this is the hardest part for me to understand with Tyler. He's elected to the Confederate Congress in 1861. So how could a man who had served in so many offices, including president, turn his back on the union? Well, this is the biggest mistake of his life. Um, I, I argue that it, it tainted his legacy. By 1861, uh, the view of Tyler as a renegade Whig had begun to soften. Um, he had outlived a lot of his political enemies. He had outlived Henry Clay. Uh, he had outlived Thomas Hart Benton, who was particularly critical of, of Tyler when he was president. So to some extent, Tyler spent part of his retirement years reshaping the narrative or reorienting the narrative to favor himself. And I think to a large extent, he had succeeded, not completely, 
But to a large extent, I think he had succeeded in softening the view that people had of him back in the 1840s. That was all ruined when he allied himself, stood for election and won election to the Confederate Congress. And I argue also that not only did this have an impact on his legacy and his political uh, fortunes, but it also harmed his family. His wife, his second wife, Julia Gardner Tyler, uh, sought a federal pension in the 1870s and 1880s. And it really hampered her ability to win this pension. People kept reminding her of her uh, uh, reminding her of her husband being the traitor president. So I think it is without question the very worst uh, aspect of his life and career it was the biggest mistake he ever made. If he had lived to serve in the Confederate Congress, which he did not, is that is that right? He didn't actually Correct. take a seat. Right. Do, do you Correct. think how would he have approached that role? How much influence do you think he would have had with the Confederate leadership? Well, one of the things that, that also interested me about Tyler is that he had this view of himself. Uh, he, he thought very highly of himself. And, and there was one point when he reentered politics and got elected to the U.S. Senate uh, after he had served as governor of Virginia, where he came back to Washington and he acted as if he had no idea how Washington could have gotten along without it. Uh, so he has a very uh, high opinion of himself. Uh, believes that in, in some ways that he is really uh, the glue that holds things together. Uh, he believed this about the Democratic Party in the 1850s. At one point in the 1850s, he even uh, toyed with the idea of trying to secure the Democratic nomination, both in 1856 and 1860. So I think he would have believed that he had a significant role to play in the Confederate Congress and believed that because he had been, ironically, because he had been president of the United States, that that would have entitled him to a lot of deference. And I think he would have uh, played as significant a role as the rest of the Confederate government would have let him. I think Jefferson Davis uh, probably would have relied on Tyler to some extent for advice uh, separate and apart from the legislative position that he would have uh, that he would have occupied in the Confederate government. Chris, we've covered a lot of ground talking about Tyler's political career. Now let's get into the more personal side of POTUS 10. Sound good? Yeah, sure. His boss, William Harrison, died after just a month in office due to a nasty illness. Did this inspire Tyler to lead a healthy life so he didn't fall to the same problem? Did he take care of himself? Well, this is another theme of Tyler's life. He, he was sick a lot of the time. Um, he had... Uh, in 1821, he had an episode while serving in the U.S. Congress uh, that one medical historian has speculated might have been the start of Guillain-Barre syndrome. So he had uh, significant health crises throughout the course of his life, even as a very young man. He was only 31 at the time that this particular incident happened. Um, so he did not really lead a healthy life in the sense that you know, he was very conscious of what he needed to do uh, to make sure that he lived a healthy life. One of the thing, one of the concessions he made um, is that he stayed away from dairy products as much as possible. I, I think he was probably lactose intolerant from what I can glean from the, the available evidence. He probably had acid reflux. Um, so he stayed away from very spicy foods. He stayed away uh, from dairy, although there was one celebrated case when he was uh, retired, when he had ice cream and he suffered for about three days afterwards because of it. 
Um, but he was he was a, a sickly, sickly individual for a lot of his life. And this goes back to his childhood. He had uh, chronic stomach problems when he was a young boy uh, that just uh, were perpetuated and got worse as he got older. I think he was always aware um, of his of his poor health. It was always something that that occupied his mind. In fact, a lot of his letters during the 1850s, you know, they they contain some sort of remark about his health or how he was recovering from a late attack or, you know, something like that. But ironically enough, while he was president, he suffered very little health issues. And one of the things that I think happened is that when Tyler was focused on work and he was laser focused on all things presidential while serving as president, of course, he had to you know, parry a lot of the opposition. He had a lot of things to do. And, and I make the point in the book that I think to some extent he was too busy to be sick while he served as president because there really are no incidents that you see either before he became president or once he was retired uh, that characterized his life. So it's kind of interesting how he uh, really focused on the matter at hand. And if he did have any kind of health issues, he certainly didn't write about them. Nice. It kind of kept him out of trouble, I guess. Yeah, in a way. Because we, we've heard a lot from previous in previous episodes and with previous experts that Washington, D.C. was not a healthy place in the 1800s. Correct. Yeah. The, the, the water supply was 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 foul. Um, there was a canal that ran in back of the White House that, you know, every time the wind blew a certain way, anybody around the grounds um, certainly, you know, smelled the, the foul odor. Yeah, it was not a it was not a healthy place. Uh, certainly not a place that um, a lot of foreign visitors regarded as worthy of an American capital. Make your own political joke there. So, Chris, let's talk about Tyler's family tree. Truly amazing to me that our tenth POTUS has a grandson, not great grandson, still living today. How is that possible? Well, that's another interesting story. And in fact, it always uh, freaks my students out when I tell them and, you know, explain this. Uh, Tyler's second wife, Julia Gardner, was 30 years younger than he was. And he had eight children with his first wife, Letitia Christian Tyler, seven children with uh, Julia Gardner Tyler. They had a son, Lion Gardner Tyler, who was born in 1853. Lion married twice. His second wife was 36 years younger than he was. And this is really the only biological way this can possibly happen, that the 10th president of the United States, born in 1790, has a grandson that's still alive. So Tyler had this particular son, Lion Gardner Tyler, when he was 63. His son, Lion, had sons when he was in his 70s with his second wife. And the, the individual you're referring to now, Harrison Tyler, uh, was born on November 7th, 1928. Uh, so that, you know, that's how you, you stretch this out. And that's how this is actually biologically possible. But you are correct. Uh, he does have a grandson that is, that is still alive today. Uh, another grandson, um, Lion Tyler, died last year, last fall. So he's, um, you know, he he it's it's amazing to even consider uh, that he had grandsons born and, uh, you know, lived in the 20th and 21st centuries. And this was all before Viagra. You had to go there, Scott. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. 
So as we talked about, the man was so polarizing, he was actually kicked out of his own political party. So my question of today's Democrat and Republican parties, who would be successful in recruiting him? Which party would he join? Well, I don't think he would join the Democrats. Um, he his his political ideology would have given him more of a uh, leaning libertarian bent, in a sense. Um, certainly, his belief in free trade. Um, he certainly would not have been a, a Trump Republican. Uh, certainly, did not favor protective tariffs. Um, I think John Tyler would have approved of the original NAFTA deal. Um, so, I think probably the Republican Party would have been able to recruit him. And that's the other thing about Tyler is that he realized as renegade as he might have been ideologically from both parties, he always recognized that having membership in at least one of those parties was central to him uh, continuing his political career. So I think he would have, at least on the surface, accommodated himself um, as he did with first the Democrats and then the Whigs. He would accommodate himself to today's Republican Party. But I think that um, by you know, by virtue of the fact that he was he was more free trade and more uh, strict construction, I think he would have been more comfortable with the uh, I guess a little further right version of the Republican Party of today. Now, a lot of great patriots get credit for the great state of Texas, but Tyler usually gets left out. So let's start a naming rights movement. Which would he most like to have named in his honor? A football stadium, an airport, or because he had a lot of kids, the birthing wing of a hospital <laughs> or something else. What do you think? Well, here's the thing. I, I think most of the people who have airports named after them or football stadiums after them, I think they probably have made a financial contribution <laughs> yeah, somewhere right, along right. the way. Yep. And Tyler was in such dire financial, financial straits for most of his life that that check would not have been forthcoming. <laughs> um, that, that being said, uh, probably a football stadium, I think. would. I won't, I won't go to the birthing wing of the hospital. <laughs> I'll get into that. So Secret Service code name. what do you think Tyler's would have been? Oh, boy. Um, well, I, I guess if looking at this biblically, didn't Jacob have the most children? <laughs> Jacob had, I think, oh, 12 sons. So maybe maybe Jacob would have been yeah. the, the appropriate uh, Secret Service code name for John Very Tyler. Very good. You know, you talked about, uh, you know, his biggest regret. What would you say, though, might be the proudest moment of his presidency? Oh, I think without question, the, the annexation of Texas. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of historians argue that, that Tyler was pro-slavery to the extent that he wanted more slave territory brought into the Union. Uh, with respect to Texas, there was also the issue of British intrigues in Texas, that perhaps if the United States did not secure the annexation of Texas, that the British would gain a foothold there and, and threaten the United States. But for me, from my reading of the evidence, a lot of this was very personal for Tyler. He very much wanted to leave a legacy. He very much wanted to leave his mark on American history and believed that the annexation of Texas project would be the best way to accomplish this. So, you know, certainly, you know, there were other things in foreign policy, as we talked about, that he could be proud of. But he spent the most time after he left the White House defending the annexation of Texas and really uh, getting very angry at people who claimed that other people in his administration had more to do with the, the ultimate securing of, of Texas. I mean, he was 
um, very jealous, very jealously guarded his legacy in this uh, in this regard. So I think the Texas annexation, without question, is is what what he would have regarded as his proudest moment. Nice. Finally, Chris, can you summarize in just one sentence his short but controversial presidency? Can it be a long sentence? Yes, it can. I'll even give you two sentences. And you, you can want. use semicolons. Okay. All right. Well, I'm a big fan of the semicolons, so that will definitely help. John Tyler was the first president to become president because of the death of the incumbent. He was excommunicated from his political party. And his successful pursuit of the annexation of Texas helped lead the United States further down the road to civil war. So I think those three elements within that that rather lengthy sentence uh, really best encapsulate Tyler's presidency. Absolutely fascinating conversation. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. What's next for you? Well, my wife and I are uh, jointly authoring a biography of Julia Gardner Tyler, which is um, under contract with the University Press of Kansas. Uh, We're spending a lot of time this summer trying to to finish it off uh, before the fall due date. Um, So that is that is the next project. Continuing with the Tyler family is is the is the plan. We'd love to have you back on when that's done. Talk with you about it. That'd be great. That would be great. Yeah. And, you know, Chris, if you go through a book about each of the family members, you'll you'll be busy for a while. You're right. (laughs) Yes, you're absolutely right about that. I wouldn't live to complete it for sure. (laughs) Chris, we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to rate and review this show on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens to and participates in the podcast. We'd like to thank author Chris Leahy for joining us on this episode about John Tyler. More information on his book, President Without a Party, The Life of John Tyler, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. While you're there on our website, drop us a note. We'd love to see your questions or comments on this episode or suggestions you might have for future topics. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow or like us on Facebook or Twitter so you'll be the first to know about new episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from John Tyler, quote, I should be pleased to see all the nations on the earth prosperous and happy and rich, for it would furnish to me the best evidence of the prosperity of my native land.